Here, this is for you. Ready? Check this out. There it is. Oh, yeah. I just splattered beer all over my computer. (laughs) (laughs) I love how you're like, oh, "Oh, man, check me out. That was so not cool. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) See, alcohol doesn't pay, man. All right. I'll never do that again. (laughs) (laughs) You better put that little bit on on this episode. Dude, that was like, that was fully... I, I played this show one time. It wasn't with the Goofs. It was with Plans for Progress, but it was a big show. It was like down in like South Carolina. It was like a, it was a house of blues, I think. It was a big venue. And we were like, and we must've been on supporting, like maybe been with lag wagon or somebody. And, uh, and dude, it's classic. Like the drummer does the count off and I'm like, I'm at my amp. I just had tweaked it. And I like gave him the nod, you know, it's like our first song. The drummer's like one, two, three. I turn around and leap. in. I mean, I had this great leaping move back in the day. Like I could really get some aerial dude, uh-huh. like in boots. Right. <laughs> yeah. I fucking like my guitar cord gets caught and like pulls the plug clean out of my fucking guitar yes. and snaps it off. So I fucking <laughs> take a fucking header onto the stage. <laughs> like the downbeat that's supposed to be like guitar, because we only had one guitar. The downbeat of one guitar and bass slamming in the, on the first song was just the bass going dong and me going smashing into the floor. <laughs> Wow. I get up and I can't even like fucking not only can I not play the guitar because the <laughs> because it's unplugged, but the plug is broken off of the guitar, so I can't even like plug in my backup guitar. So it's oh. like a fucking the biggest it's literally the biggest fail of my whole career. You're just what, sitting on stage in front of a ton of people, <laughs> thumb up your ass. Like completely the moment was so over, man. <laughs> I love that it was because you were trying to be so cool too. On the ver- the downbeat of the first song, I was going to just like deliver this massive leap. I just picture <laughs> like the like the uncle at a picnic with like a fedora and the Tommy Bahama shirt, you know, like trying to tell some funny joke to the kids and then leaning back in the lawn chair and just eating shit. <laughs> it was that totally was yeah, that was the rock and roll equivalent of you. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah. So that's my beer episode reminded me of that. Yeah. Check yeah. this out, yo. <laughs> uh, Brad, Brad. Well, let me tell you something, man. Do. Had a rough day. Did my you? Game, my GameStop stock is oh, <laughs> taking a fucking bath. <laughs> you know, I, it's like I get involved, I start running this hedge fund. <laughs> you know, and then these just these little rabble rousers go to town. Yeah, you were really sitting on top of the world there for a minute, weren't you? I'm broke. <laughs> I broke. They drained two and a half billion dollars from my head. You know, I just do going off track for for fun. You know, well, obviously, I'm a, I'm a billionaire. Everybody knows that. Yeah, man. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I just checked on this. I heard some rumors that it's true, and it is true. They also jumped up AMC stock. And yep. they jumped up BlackBerry stock too. Yeah. Yeah. The totally. thing I love about this the most, I think, is that like, sure, there's a little bit of vindictiveness going on because it's the little guy, David versus Goliath kind of story, you know? Yeah. But I like that it seems to come from an actual place of like love and irony, you know? Like, yeah. The people who got behind this are people who were like, 
wandering around GameStop in the 90s buying used copies of Final Fantasy and playing the display and selling old controllers. They have an actual love for this place. Yeah. So I like that this whole hoax was sort of based on like a little innocence and, <laughs> and, and a little irony. Like it's all, it kind of makes it funnier to me, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think it's hilarious. Speaking of which, did you hear Jeff Bezos steps down? What? As CEO of Amazon. Yeah. Believe that? Mm. News just broke. And this it's is- actually apropos because our boy uh, Jake and the Disgraceland podcast just went to Amazon. I guess he's... Maybe he's the new CEO. Techni- <gasps> wow. Did we just break this? Did we break <laughs> this? Jake Brennan, new CEO. You heard it first. I can't believe the guy from Cast Iron Hike is the new CEO of <laughs> yeah. Amazon. That's amazing. Well, you know what's funny? So Jake now owns a company that's worth $1.7 trillion. Oh, my God. He owns a company that employs 1.3 million people. Uh, he owns a company that props up the CIA on its cloud network. And mm. he owns a company that has enough paying subscribers to populate the ninth largest country on Earth. <laughs> oh, I didn't know the last one. Wow. Woo. Goodness gracious. Well, good for you, Jake. I'm glad. I wish we... Uh, <laughs> Shit, I wish I got his phone number or something. <laughs> you know? Love to be on that guy's speed dial. Mm. Man, we are small potatoes out here, Brad. Yeah. There's some big there's some big boys at work out there, you know? Get used to it. What are we doing? What are you, do? you know, I was supposed to get this golden ticket. Was there a golden ticket? Was that how they're doing it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me check the mail. <laughs> I think that, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. It's a metaphorical golden ticket, but we all know what that means. Wait, what is this in my beer? <laughs> oh my gosh. You own Amazon. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of owning Amazon, I was kidding. I don't own a hedge fund. I didn't buy GameStop stock, but we do have a Patreon, which funds this program. Every episode. Yeah. We have uh, extra content, funny stories and commentary. We have now a weekly Patreon chat where we jump into uh, a chat room and fuck around and go on a spiritual journey with whoever would like. <laughs> so uh, if you want, help us out and uh, go to the uh, Patreon. and Patreon.com you know, slash going off track. Yeah. Much appreciate, you know. And uh, thanks to Little Mike, one of my oldest friends in the world. And Jeff Agiba, also one of my older friends in the world, the owners of Black Gold Records, oh, for yeah. those uh, stumpers they gave us to to try and stump the uh, music historian Jake Brennan. I told them yeah. though, I was like, "Listen, don't go stumpers; he'll never get them." So thank <laughs> the guys from Black Gold Records for uh, for sending those in, and everybody go to Black Gold Records. And then thanks to Jake for coming on this podcast. I was really excited to do this. Yeah, he's you know, a cool guy. Very cool guy. I felt like I, I could have, I would have loved to get off this and just keep talking. I want stories, stories on stories. <laughs> I want to have a beer with this guy. Especially, maybe I'm just angling now that he's the owner of Amazon. But It's funny because you got him as a guest because I, I probably had listened to the first one of these maybe a week and a half before you told me we were going to get him. Ah. 
So I've only listened to like about three of them, but they're all great. And I, it's, it's my number one right now on my list for, yeah, it's my yeah, go-to. Yeah. It's, it's really, yeah, it grabbed me right away too. I mean, it's just this perfect mix of, you know, I meant to even ask about in the interview how, you know, the feel of it is so dark and kind of campy and almost film noir, you know, like, yeah, yeah. like mixing that real dark, true crime kind of theme with the music stuff. I mean, it's really a great fucking idea, like, and good for him for not only, you know, creating this idea, but, but executing it really well from the first episode on, you know, he deserves all the success he has. Yeah, let's get into this and uh, listen to a little bit of his story. Okay. All right. Now we're rolling. We're rolling. <laughs> Let's party. See, this is what happens when you don't sit face to face with people anymore. You know, I don't, you haven't had to deal with this yet, Jake. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. You guys, I mean, this must have completely changed your world. I mean, yeah. it must be so much easier to do podcasts about people who are like dead and stuff. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I don't, have, I don't have to wrangle, you know, who Marvin Gaye around a microphone. It's just not. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, so I already brought up Naked Gun and Naked Gun 2 and OJ Simpson before we started recording. But that was actually leading to something because OJ is like, you know, especially that character in Naked Gun. It's such a wholesome lovable character it's one of the reasons i think when this first happened people were like no oj you know but then yep. you know people had to come to this strange reconciliation where people still are for some reason like that guy committed murder and then you know like uh is on twitter and has a million followers in a couple days like there's still this thing around it and i saw something you had said in a quote that you said the stories uh attempt to reckon the heinous acts committed by musicians with our love for the amazing music they create, which is particularly relevant in the here and now. And I found that really um, impactful currently because we talk about this a lot on the podcast, you know, in the age of cancel culture, you know, maybe a, a bulk of the stories and half the people we love maybe wouldn't have ever had the chance to be pop stars because of their own transgressions and i was curious for you like like where does that end and I, and as just like a fan of music where do you decide to draw the line it's interesting it's a interesting question i get asked it a lot um just by the nature of what disgraceland is but yeah you know i try to i try to objectify the art as much as possible and take whatever emotion I might have out of it when I'm certainly when I'm, when I'm, when I'm starting to tell the stories, but I'm human. So the emotion always kind of finds, kind of finds its, finds its way in there. And, you know, I'm not a journalist. I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, be unbiased. You know, I have an editorial point of view on, Certainly all of these artists as humans, the more I kind of get into them and study them, research them and talk about them. And then I also, of course, have an editorial point of view on, on their music. And, right, right. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, you have like these hardcore criminals, murderers in some cases. <laughs> right. Right. Like, like if you look, Rick James wasn't a murderer, 
but he was one of the most criminal-minded musicians of all time. I mean, everything from kidnapping women and tying them up and burning them with crack pipes to running drugs for the Colombian cartel to dealing drugs as a child with his mom to John Coltrane and Miles Davis. And you put super freak on at a party, man. And I don't care. I'm partying, you know, like I'm dancing, like it's not, it doesn't affect me. Um, but some, sometimes it does. Like I was, I, I haven't been able to really listen to Ryan Adams for the last like year and a half or two years or whatever it's been. And, you know, maybe that's, does that, is that because Rick, because Super Freak is like, uh, you know, a much better single than I Still Love You, New York? <laughs> Maybe. Is it because I just like Rick James better than Ryan Adams? Maybe. I, I mean, I, I really don't know. I don't, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Some things skate, some things don't. And, you know, I was watching, my wife and I watched, um, you guys know who James Toback is, that filmmaker, writer. It sounds familiar, but not certain. Like super, um, like he he wrote like Bugsy and the Pickup Artist, and like he's okay. kind of like a, a filmmaker's uh, screenwriter director. Anyways, he had this this movie pop up from like 2017 out of nowhere on Netflix, and we watched it the other night, and it's with Alec Baldwin. And as we're watching, I'm sitting there going like talking to my wife. I'm like, you know, I think this guy had like a Me Too thing, and I think that's why this movie didn't come out until right now. So we watched the whole movie and then I Google him afterwards and it's like 300 women, the most oh. insane accusations. Like, and I don't mean insane. Like the women are insane. I mean, like the things this guy did were nuts. And I immediately felt bad for watching. We both did for watching the movie. Right. I don't know what that was, but it just grossed me out in the moment. And you know, it, but it didn't necessarily change how I felt about the film after I watched it. If that makes any sense. It does. It's a really strange thing. And it's funny you bring up the Rick James, uh, Ryan Adams thing. I mean, I, I do think part of it is nostalgia and, the, you know, maybe a, a generation past. Like, you know, when I saw the Rick James skit on Chappelle show and that brought like Rick James back into my narrative again, like I didn't remember all that. You know, I didn't remember all the crazy stuff Rick James did or I didn't even know. You know, because I was a generation after where people who kind of like came up with Ryan Adams were like the same age. And you might have an idea that he's like more like us and you hold him to a closer standard or something. But I think part of it and maybe maybe you agree is kind of the way you wear it. You know, Rick James was sort of unabashed about what he was. Right. You know, sort of unapologetic and uh, not to say that made him a good person or something. But Ryan Adams whole thing has been coming from sort of a real, a squirrely place. You know what I mean? Not a place where you're like owning your transgression. You're not owning yourself. You don't, you just don't trust them. You feel like it's dirty over there, even though they're both doing dirty shit, you know? Yeah. They're both being, yeah, exactly. There's, there's a weaseliness to the Ryan Adams thing that makes it particularly tough to support. Whereas, Rick James is sort of sitting there telling you, man, like, <laughs> I'm into the freaky shit. You know what I mean? Like, this is what you're going to get, man. <laughs> this is what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, like, this comes with the turf. It's like, it's like if you want to have, like, uh, Ryan Adams is, like, eating a chocolate bar and getting drunk. Rick yeah. James is doing drugs and being high. 
Yeah. You know, like, I, I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, I, know. I get it. I get it. It's not, it's not what you signed up for. It's, you exactly. Know I mean? exactly. But, but then, you know, there's another thing, too, that I think we're overlooking. And it's the there's two other things, actually. There's like, like, we're in a moment right now. And we have been for the last five years or so, even before Me Too, where there's this reckoning going on. And part of that is the availability of information that wasn't here before. Mm. And, you know, it's like, like this, it, it, that thing shifts too. You know what I mean? Like, like when me too hit, when the Ryan Adams thing hit on the, like what, like six, eight months after that or whatever, it it was kind of like we were ready to react as a culture. Like we were kind of trained on how to react as a culture. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I read this Marilyn Manson stuff yesterday. It doesn't seem like the world is freaking out over it in the same way. Mm-hmm. And the accusations are 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 crazy like the stuff that that guy did and I'm not I'm not shocked at all. It totally like makes sense. It's not like I'm sitting here going like I don't believe the women. I don't think anybody's saying that, right? Mm-hmm. But to me it doesn't seem as big as the Ryan Adams thing did a year ago or whatever. So mm-hmm. to me, like the culture side of it, it can't be ignored and how we, we as a culture uh, ingest media and ingest these stories and how it makes us feel. Right. I mean, do you think some part of that, you know, uh, if it's a broader cultural thing, uh, often in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, until things grew up a little, do you think a lot of this was just coming from sort of a boys will be boys kind of place there was also yes but there was also an ignorance to it Mm. and people just didn't like i've always kind of believed this stuff because i've always been in the music industry you know my dad was in it you know like not so i've been like exposed to these stories early on not to say like i was hanging out with rick james or anything like i'm not trying to pretend that was the case but i you know when i would read stuff i could bring it to my dad and kind of like gut check it and he'd be like oh yeah that's true <laughs> you know what i mean like right. so it, but to other people who live relatively straight lives and like you got to understand too like the entertainment you guys know this the entertainment business is is in still to some degree the wild wild west like there's a different set of norms and behaviors yeah and and like you said the 50s 60s and 70s it was wide open you know like you could get away with anything as long as you were making money you know i mean i hate to say that but that was the truth yeah and i feel like to my earlier point like somebody living in the straight world if you know you saw them at a cocktail party and i've actually had this happen to me numerous times where I, you know, before disgrace, I'd be like, "Yo, Jerry Lee Lewis killed his wife." People would be like, "No, he didn't. Shut up." <laughs> right? You know, I'm like, "No, he did." Like, I can prove it to you, and it's just like it's it's unfathomable because to them, you know, if they're a dentist, to think of like, you know, their dentist doing that, you know, it's it's just not it's not going to happen, you know? Yeah, or even putting in it in a contemporary context, like, "Yo, Will Smith just murdered his wife." Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, what is that doing the news these days? You yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you said you were kind of raised in this uh, with that narrative, and your father is in the music industry. And by the way, your publicist, when I was booking this, failed to mention that you were in Cast Iron Hike, and I had to find oh. that out by myself. So oh, I am. Oh, I am a proud owner of the Salmon Drive EP. 
Get out. Yeah, yeah. This was like this was really cool, like to to connect those dots. Cause well, first off, Brad Brad thought you were the guy who played Richie Rich. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people think that. And it, Oftentimes I just let people believe that shit. So that's yeah. that's that took us about 30 minutes to put together. I was like, no shit. The guy who played Richie Rich is doing this podcast. Wow. Impressive. Oh. You know? Oh, man. That's funny. I actually, uh, I had a call with a big music attorney a couple months ago from uh-huh. LA. And like we get on the call and he's like, I watched, I watched one of your films with my daughter last night on Netflix. I have to say it was very good. And I did not correct him. And then I, I had to do it later. I was just like, I can't let this guy keep thinking I'm 12 years old. <laughs> well, it's a testament. I mean, listen, you're both, you're both handsome fellas, okay? Oh, well, thank you. You're, you're about to get canceled, though, because he's an underage boy, so I just want to point that out. Still? <laughs> I don't know. I'm oh, sure. fuck. <laughs> if only it were 1972, I could have gotten away with that, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, I mean, yeah, like you said, you know, music has been part of your narrative from the get-go. Um, you know, wh- what was it like in the house for you? I mean, are we talking just music on all the time? music on television, music magazines, like were you just inundated with it from an early age or did something else kind of draw you to all that? Well, no, I mean, it was like, you know, it's funny. My, I explained this stuff to my wife and you know, my wife is 11 years younger than me and she has a different relationship with her parents over cultural stuff than I do. So even though my dad was a musician, um, you know, he, I didn't grow up with him in the same house. He lived in the city and I lived in the suburbs with my mom and my stepdad. And it was, but with my mom, there was this like crazy generation gap between us Mm. where, you know, my mom, you know, she's only 18 years older than me. It's not like she's, you know, she was from a completely different generation, but it was just the way it was done. It was like, she wouldn't allow herself to, um, you know, admit to me that she liked Led Zeppelin because she was afraid what that might do to me as a child. So right. like really kind of a different experience. My dad, on the other hand, um, you know, he had, you know, because he was a musician and because he kind of knew how, you know, where the bodies were buried, so to speak, and how hard of a life it was, he mm. never really pushed it on me. But as I started to get you know, music was kind of the way I tried to like connect with my dad, you know, so like I, and I was just, you know, authentically obsessed with all things music and and reading about it and learning about it. And whenever, you know, I read an article on like, you know, the Chili Peppers and Rolling Stone and they talk about the meters or P-Funk. Well, you know, Mm -hmm. my friends read that article, they were screwed. If I read the article, because, you know, they were screwed because the record store in our town didn't have any of that music. But sure. I can go to my dad's house and just go to the M section and pull out the meters and I'd be good. Or every single Beastie Boys musical reference in every single Beastie Boys song, <laughs> I could right. easily go find. Yeah. You know? so, but at the same time, it wasn't like my dad was pushing it down my throat, but he would, you know, give me context into like what that stuff was where, you know, so I feel really lucky that I had that going on. And then as of reading these stories and hearing these rumors and from other people, uh, you know, this like behind the scenes stuff that was implausible and, and just unbelievable. I could ask my dad about it and kind of, like I said before, get a gut check on it. And, you know, he would, you know, he could confirm things for me just by stuff that he had heard as well. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, was this, uh, you know, because your father, did you really, uh, 
like sort of idolize him and the stories you were reading? I think I did, you know, not, not being conscious of it, but I think it was like, you know, you know, not to get on the couch here, but it was a little like, you know, this is how I'm going to connect with my dad in like a subconscious way, you know, like we're into this thing together type of thing. Uh, But, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, yeah. Listen, Jake, first off, laying on the couch is what going off track is all about. I'm literally laying on my couch right now (laughs) with my laptop on my chest. So, yeah. Yeah. So you're still in, uh, still in New England, right? Yes, I am. Just, uh, just north of Boston, a little town. You know, uh, Brad here is also, uh, from from Podunk, Massachusetts, like you, Western Western Mass. <laughs> which, which which Podunk town in Western Mass? Brimfield. Oh, nice. Yes, of the Brimfield flea market. I know it well. Oh yeah, right the on. Real Podunk. Yes. So I, I uh, texted Brad before this, being like, "Here, I'll I'll give you guys about five minutes to talk about fleece jackets or, or whatever <laughs> whatever people like you do. You know, um, heavy socks, man. Heavy socks. Yeah." But, you know, in that way, you kind of, you know, I, as a uh, high schooler at the time when you were putting out records in the Boston area, you know, I was literally looking at colleges and stuff in the Boston area because of what you all had going on up there. You know, there was this scenes coming out, you know, like Big Wheel Recreation and you guys and, um, you know, Caven and Converge, uh, Piebald, you know, all this stuff from Boston that I just was madly in love with. And uh, so you kind of fell in or not fell in, but were part of like a pretty, pretty hearty scene up there too. Right. Like, like now, now in retrospect, does it, can you see it as the fact that you were sort of around at a pretty special time of like punk and hardcore up in that area? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I mean, big wheel was like, you know, that was, Literally, I mean, we were the Castor Night was the first release on that label, and wow. you know, then it goes on. They're doing like, you know, I wake up and Jimmy Eat World's like sleeping on my couch, you know, <laughs> right. like there's, there's, you know, and even like recording, like we recorded at this house in Brighton where I live with my roommates, and you know, like Texas is the reason recorded in that basement, and a, a lot of great band, like Ten Yard Fight was literally invented at my kitchen table, you know, like wow. that stuff was. I will say though, we were a bunch of self-important pricks, so we kind of knew how special it was. <laughs> not gonna lie, um, you know, there's not a lot of false modesty in in the hardcore scene. So yeah, that's <laughs> not, true. not at that time, anyway. Yeah, um, and it, but it was also what what I didn't expect was it to kind of end, and you know, there's mm. definitely been a flattening of live music um, that. You know, even before, obviously before COVID hit, um, but the scene was super lively and there were, you know, every weekend there were great matinees to go to. And, the, you know, as we get a little older, there were great, great shows like, you know, you could go see Rye Coalition for, you know, six bucks upstairs at the Middle East and there'd be like 150 people there freaking right. out. And it was amazing. And that was like a Tuesday, you know, like, mm-hmm. so it was, it was pretty special. And I like to think we, at least I had the presence of mind at the time, even, you know, you know, despite how far my own head was up my own ass at the time, like I still kind of knew what was going on and it it felt special. What just out of my own curiosity, 
what was the initial conversation that led to 10 yard fight? Cause I mean, that was the era of every straight edge band trying to pick like the theme, you know, and yeah, they, well, they were like the best ones because well, they kind of invented it. And it was, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think of like who my, ac- my actual roommates were like Pete from mouthpiece lived in that house. And then, okay. uh, Sweet Pete lived in that house. He went on to sing for In My Eyes. Uh, I think John LaCroix lived with us for a while, but although I get our place confused with his place in Mission Hill. Um, but it was just, I, I think it was just those guys. I, I was never straight edge either. So I was like literally like sitting at the table with a rolling rock, like laughing at all this. <laughs> like, I, I think it, I think it was those guys just trying to like entertain themselves make themselves laugh and have fun. And, but also at the same time, they were deadly serious about it, which, which made it all the more compelling. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the football analogy was just great. It was oh. just so good. Perfect. It's, it's genius. It's like the, to me, it's like the nineties white version of like black exploitation. you know, it's like, yes. you had to take it a hundred percent serious if you wanted it to play, you know, right. like, like Richard Roundtree wasn't kidding when he was playing Shaft, and that's what right. makes it so great, you know. <laughs> like, that analogy is so good; it's so right on. I love it. Perfect. Appreciate that. But so, I, I mean, it leads, you know, because of your background. Um, you know, I saw that Disgraceland, uh, you know, made a jump up to I think was it iHeart Radio. Um, uh, yeah, we're now on Amazon Music exclusively. Okay. Yeah, cool. So. Sorry about that, Jeff Bezos. Don't do anything okay. to me. Um, so, but I saw a quote that says, you know, it allows you to grow the audience, which is difficult to do as an independent podcaster. And you wrote that Disgraceland will remain independent. Um, I was wondering to you, Neil, like you're in a pretty, uh, I guess, major label world now, if you put it in like a music context. And as an old punk and hardcore kid, um, you know, how much of that like uh, goes into your decision making and how much dictates it? Like, do you still carry that kind of um, the ethic into what you're doing now? Yeah, well, this is this is the move to Amazon. We're actually at iHeart beforehand and we've gone to Amazon. This is kind of like the second major label deal. Um, And it's. It's, it's a little bit different. You know, when you sign a major label record deal and you're a musician, you're signing over your intellectual property. Mm. You're basically, you're, you know, you're becoming an indentured servant. And, and that's not an exaggeration to say that. I mean, that's yeah. pretty much what you're doing. And that's not the case. Um, I was thankful I grew Disgraceland, you know, to really complete your analogy. Like I kind of like, you know, made my own little... Fugazi version of a podcast mm-hmm. and I had developed a big enough audience where I could, I had leverage going into the conversation with um, my first partner in iHeart. And then again with Amazon. And these are, you know, these are deals that I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of, but they're also, you know, there's, they're, they're not forever. And I maintain creative control over what I'm doing. And that's, you know, that's said, it's like, you know, it's a partnership, you know, like I, I know where the parameters are, what I can and can't do. But at the same time, they know the show they're getting. They know the success of the show is due in part to how it's made. They're not stupid enough to 
try and change anything, even if they could, you know, it's not, we don't really live in that world anymore. You know, like putting out a record label, putting out a record on a major label in, in the 19, late 1990s is an entirely different world from putting out a podcast with a major media company right now. Like uh-huh. culture has changed so much. And the, the sort of paradigm argument of an indie band on a major label where the, the, you know, the tensions around like, are you marketable? Can you be on the radio? Like none of that comes into play. It's like, I, you know, I spit out 30 minutes of content into an RSS feed and it goes around the world and there's, there are no FCC regulations to worry about. There's no censoring. There's nothing. It's just like, you can get it. And if it's good content, people are going to be into it. And if it's not, not good content and it sucks or it's watered down, then they're not going to be into it. So it's, it's just a different thing. I mean, but to really answer your question, I, you know, the punk rock kid in me, the hardcore kid in me, like I learned really early on that I couldn't really have a boss. It's, I don't work that way. And I wanted to do something on my own and have my own freedom to do it. And thankfully I've been able to do that with Disgraceland and being with Amazon doesn't change that. And, you know, they're not, they didn't get to be Amazon by being dumb. Like they, they totally get what, what's happening and they would tell you the same thing. Right. Right. So the podcast, uh, it was pretty big right out of the box, right? I mean, it seems like it became popular very quickly. It did. I mean, almost immediately it, it gained, it gained an audience and it snowballed and it grew and it grew and it grew. And it's kind of like had these, you know, right out of the gate. Yes, it did. And it turned into a job like within the first two weeks, it was, it was selling ads, you know, and, and part of that was, you know, I had the show figured out, you know, I deserve credit for that. Like it was a fully realized thing. I didn't kind of like half ass it out of the gate, but I also, I can't take credit for the timing and there's a lot of luck that was involved. Like I was, I came into the podcast world at a time when there just weren't as many podcasts and podcasting has grown so much over the last three years Mm. where it was easier for me to make the splash out of the gate. Um, like I did when I did because of the timing of it. And you were sort of in a critical situation too, from my understanding, right? Then you, um, like decide to do this and and then your your wife got pregnant or something right at the same time? Yeah, there was um yeah, we decided to do it. We ended up selling selling our house, our condo in uh, our tiny condo and and we were like, Oh yeah, we'll sell the condo and we'll use the money to you'll make that we make, we'll put the profit like into a new place, but also, you know, we'll we'll fund this business. But, you know, then yeah, we ended up finding out that my wife was pregnant right after we made those decisions. <laughs> no, pressure. no pressure. No pressure. Yeah. So the stakes got really high, really quick. And that, you know, that kind of forced me to focus both of us really to focus and, um, you know, not fuck around and, and put together the best, best possible show we could. And, you know, I don't, I don't regret that pressure at all. Definitely. It definitely helped shape and fuel the show. Sure. Must've been a great feeling that first week. Like what a great sense of relief. I'm sure you had. Not really. I mean, no? yeah, yeah. I mean, relatively speaking to the, to what the feeling would have been had it not worked. Yes, definitely. But you know, I still feel that panic every day. I mean, I feel it right <laughs> now. 
Right. Disgraceland is like, you know, today's the first day that it's exclusive on, on ah, Amazon. Okay. You're going to go like download a new app now to listen to the show. And, you know, there's a lot of anxiety around that. That said, we've already done this, but, you know, and I know it's going to work. So, but I still have that, that fire and that drive, you know, and also just that, like that feeling of being like a punk rock kid trying to play a show in the middle of Brimfield, Massachusetts. Right. I'm being like, shit, man, is anyone going to show up? Right. I've, you know, like it's that, that'll never go away. Well, to keep it New England, right? Satisfaction yeah. is the death of desire, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems like the show has got to be a lot of work. Like you really didn't have a choice. Kid, kid aside, you know, you needed to get successful fast because, I mean, how much time do you spend on one, on one of these episodes? Well, the production cycle for an episode is about three weeks time. And it's a, a week for me to research, a week for me to write, and then about a week for the team to put the audio together. So yeah, it is, it's a lot of work. We've got about 10 people working full time on this show and a couple other shows right now. And yeah, you're right. It had to work or it wasn't going to work. You know, we were going to find out quickly if it was going to work or not, but you know, but I thought, I mean, if I'm being totally honest with you, I, I thought it, I did not, I was not convinced it would turn into what it turned into, but I did think if I did something that could be a proof point, it would at least kind of like put me on the path towards some sort of job in podcasting. Mm. Um, and I was, you know, super excited to be podcasting at the time. So I thought it would be a win-win no matter what. That's awesome. Well, I got to say, I mean, at this point, you are probably known as a uh, music historian. Uh, as you said, you don't consider yourself a journalist, but I'm sure other people do at this point. So that being said, uh, we've come up with a new game show for you to play on this episode today. Are you All right? You up, you up for a game show? I am. Let's do it. And it's called Who Can Stump the Historian? So what I did was I tried to find people I know who maybe are equally or nerdier than you as far as music goes. The two people I uh, employed for this job are my very old friends, Mike and Jeff, who own Black Gold Records, which is on Court Street in Brooklyn. Great record yeah. store, great coffee, dollar record bins. Everyone should go to Black Gold. But those two boys hooked me up with a who can stump the historian list. Are you up for something? Yeah, man. You bring in fucking ringers? It's one thing if it's you guys. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hold no. on. Let me call fucking Peter Gorilnik and Alan Light and get them to answer your questions. <laughs> Listen, number one music podcast in the country. I couldn't pull any punches, Jake. You know, I had to go for it. But I will throw in this caveat. I knew these guys could get really, really deep. So I told wow. them specifically, listen, I'm looking for conversation starters, not stumpers. Okay. okay. So All right, cool. I just want to get into it a little. All right. So question number one from Mike and Jeff, who killed Randy Rhodes? And can you talk about the bizarre circumstances upon which he died? I mean, he died in, he died in a plane crash. Yeah. Like, Okay. So are we talking conspiracy theory here behind who killed him? No, no. Like what, what actually happened, which is a fairly insane story. I have it on hand if we need it. All right. Give me the, give me the insane story. Okay. The insane story was his tour bus driver, 
Andrew Icock, <laughs> after a show in 82, they stopped to get the air conditioning on their bus service. Okay, hold on. Let me stop you. Let me stop you right here because yeah. I do know what happens. Okay. They do. They do. They see a plane. Right. They they, they hotwire it or whatever. They find right. the keys. They take it up. It lands. It cuts into the bus that Ozzy's sleeping on. He does not die, but Randy Rhodes does die. Nailed. Like it. I do. I do know that. I did not know. I thought you were going with like because there are some batshit conspiracy theories out there that somebody else had something to do with it. I thought that's where you were going. Oh, with it. really? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I made specifically the boys asked me, they're like, can we get into folklore here? And I'm like, you know, for the sake of actually answering these questions, let's do it. But I, I never knew what a crazy story that they they decided to buzz the band like in fucking Top Gun. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the wing just clips the bus and both of them die. I mean, what a ridiculous, ridiculous scenario. OK, so you're one for one. That was definitely close enough. All right. Yeah. Now, two. In 1988, <laughs> this is funny. What did a PCP influence James Brown claim that an insurance company's clients were doing when he stormed in waving a shotgun? Oh, fuck. I know this. I covered this. Um, God damn it. It's not, it's not spying on him, is it? No. No, I, I can't. I cannot remember. What is it? All right. In quotes. I got strangers using my bathroom. The shitter. Yeah, shitting in his toilet. <laughs> shitting I, in his toilet. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, because he had a he had an office in a strip mall and he was, yeah, very, very high and paranoid at the time. Yeah. All right, shit, man. Yeah. Give me half a point there. I half got to it. Point. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Here's one I'm sure I'm sure you'll get, but this is interesting. In nineteen ninety one, Mayhem Singer Dead committed suicide. Bandmate Euronymous famously made jewelry out of this piece of his body. His skull. His skull. Fragments. The That's bone right. fragments. That's right. Uh, bonus point for he took some of his uh his his body and and cooked it into a, a stew and ate it as well. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. That's part of the tale. It is. And apparently, you know, this is one of those things I thought, oh, that's just fable that he gave everybody's skull. There's like half a dozen Norwegian metal musicians who have either a piece of this guy's skull or brain matter, like still. Oh, yeah. I'm wearing one right now. I've got it made into an earring that I had. They sent me after I did the Norwegian black metal episode. <laughs> Wait, tell me that's actually true. No, it's not oh. true. There is a Norwegian black metal episode of Disgrace in it, but I am not wearing wearing a bit of the the um, the singer's skull right now. One day, one day, a girl can dream. Now, this one is a, it's it's a little bit of a bummer, but I thought because of where you're from, you might have a special tie to this. How and why did the lead singer of Boston end his own life? I can't go there, man. Dude. I can't. I can't. First of all, it hasn't been proven. Oh, okay. Okay. No, your boys are leading you. Oh, they <laughs> in, let me down. Into some libelous territory here. Um, and uh, look, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying I heard the rumors. They're too fucked up for me to even get into. All right, let's not do it. Yeah, I think more entertaining is how Boston recorded their self-titled album. I think that's the fun one with that guy. Uh, Send, Tom Schultz. Yeah, sending a, a fake musician to California to a studio to fake record the record while he actually did it in his basement in Massachusetts. 
Pretty oh, cool. really? Yeah. I didn't know that story. That's that, amazing. Yeah, it's a great story. And literally, he, because he, he was one of the, he was working for MIT and had written these songs and was performing them around Boston. And he had a home studio. You know, this is before a lot of people had home studios. Right. And he had this really, really, really high quality demo of basically Boston self-titled, totally written and recorded already. They sent it uh, finally to labels and they said, we want this same exact album just re-recorded, but we want it to sound exactly the same. He thought this was like the stupidest thing ever and literally booked this studio out in LA, sent, I, I, I don't know, one dummy musician to go out there to like botch the record and had a, uh, a gigantic truck parked outside of his house to feed the files from the computer into his street and then delivered this album uh, that he made in his basement. And actually was still working at MIT when it dropped. Damn, that's an amazing story. I never knew that. Cool. Incredible. All right, so we're going nowhere near Boston. Here's the last one. This one was crazy. How did Bushwick Bill from the Ghetto Boys lose his eye? And for bonus points, why? I, I, I straight up have to guess here. I okay. think he was shot, right? He was. Shot in the eye. He was shot in the eye. Uh, uh, I'm going to guess it has to do with a woman, and it, it does not have to do with some sort of other sort of crime. Is that right? It does have to do with a crime, but the woman is his mother. <laughs> wow. So That's apparently in 1991, he made his mom shoot him for life insurance money. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's crazy. So, so he was a little tuned up on whiskey, weed, and PCP, feeling a little down, and he came up with a plan to end his own life and collect insurance money on it. Damn. Now, since suicides don't pay, he came up with an elaborate plan to go to the home of his sleeping mother, put a loaded gun in her hand, and intentionally startle her so she would shoot and kill him. Jesus As fate would God. have it, she did shoot. He turned his head. The bullet only shot at his eye. But as he was leaving the hospital, someone shot the photo forever memorialized on the cover of the classic We Can't Be Stopped album. Oh, my God. Man. That is amazing. And that's a Disgraceland episode right there. There you go. Yeah. Small commish to the guys at Black Gold Records for that one. <laughs> I, uh, I can't wait to go into Black Gold Records and try to talk to those guys. And if they don't big time me, like in some sort <laughs> cool record store clerk kind of way i'm gonna be disappointed all right so let's count here you got half of them jake okay all right i'll take that Which is fine 50, with me. yeah that's like my gpa in high school so we're doing <laughs> well thanks for playing the game with us i thought i yeah. you know i didn't want you to come on and do a quiz show i thought that was kind of mean but i wanted to have a chance to talk about some of these funny transgressions that actually happen i mean there's there's endless ones i mean I mean, there's so many. I mean, the Big Lurch, you guys know the Big Lurch story about him, the rapper cannibalizing his his roommate. I mean, that's a real thing. No. This stuff is... Tell me yeah, that one. What's that one? It's endless. I mean, he was like Mr. James Brown. He was high. It was... Uh, he was doing this thing called... Uh, oh, shit. What was it? It was when you dip PCP into formaldehyde and mm. you smoke it. Um, I forget what they called it, but he was really paranoid and he thought there was somebody inside his roommate's stomach talking to him and he ended up 
literally like eating her, like Ugh. eating into the stomach and tearing her apart. Ugh. Brutal. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. I, a, a recent, uh, a quick, um, a quick Google on this. They call it a smoking wet. When smoking you, wet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you put there a you joint go. in formaldehyde. Yeah. <laughs> it looks exactly. like, we, I think we should try that one tonight, I guess. That would be a good episode. Yeah. I guess you should that. Well, awesome, man. Well, thanks for playing that little game with us. So of course. moving on to some other stuff. Now, um, if you could time travel to any music scene, right? Past or present to be a part of as a musician or a fan, where would you go? I think there's, there's two answers. There's the early 70s, New York scene. First of all, both both as fans, I never want to be a musician like a working musician again in my life. It's too hard. Right. I, I think um, early seventies New York, like during the time of the New York Dolls, mm. when you have this like incredible moment of the the Warhol world meeting what's about to become the punk rock world, you've got disco starting to happen like it's not not cool yet studio 54 hasn't happened yet but yet you know disco djs are 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 starting and you've also got this like this rock and roll is changing in this amazing way and there's really you've got the old guard 60s you know rubbing up against the new guard 70s Mm. and you could do things like like see all like if you were just downtown you know, no one went downtown then. So it was like, if you did, you could easily get into, get up to this stuff, you know what I mean? And get into it. Um, that, that era fascinates me. And then in that time and place, and then also the, um, the, when Frank Sinatra really had Vegas, when he owned it mm. and he had, he was partners in this at the Sands nightclub and he would do things like, uh, you know, his buddy Judy Garland wasn't doing so hot. So he'd like, you know, you know, book a show for her out there. And he and all his buddies would come to support her. And, you know, there'd be all these like real life gangsters hanging around and just not so, you know, to say Rat Pack sounds kind of cheesy, but there was so much to that world that is beyond the sort of like uh, Hollywood version of it that fascinates me. Um, so those those two two eras would be my answer. Imagine how nice your suits would have been if you were a part of that crew, man. Oh man, you're right. <laughs> beautiful, exactly, beautiful suits. Brad, is it time for mystery friend, yeah. Benny? Yeah, I can't believe you fished <laughs> one of these up for Brad. Well, we do have. So Benny made up the uh, that game show just for you, like, <laughs> but this is a recurring. Um, little thing that we have on the show called mystery friend. Yep. And okay. I'm going to prompt you for something that happened to you in your life at some point, And you need to elaborate on the story and then try to guess who told me. Oh boy. Oh Jesus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the time you found yourself in an LA dive bar, taking a piss next to John Mayer. <laughs> um, Evan Kenny told you the story. <laughs> oh shit. You right? got it. <laughs> right? Right? It was uh, <laughs> That was um that was a really interesting night. That was the night so Evan and I were working for this um for those of you who don't know who Evan Kennedy is, I, he was in this band Bodega Girls with me for a period, but he also fronted a great band called uh Red Yellow, a hardcore band from Massachusetts back in the day. And um 
we were working together in Los Angeles and we were creating this video content at the time for this guy, Aaron North, who was in Nine Inch Nails and had a new band with Mikey from Queens of the Stone Age. Anyways, blah, blah, blah. Those guys are pretty wired in. We asked them where to go. We said we want to go to some dive bar that isn't like a Hollywood bar. Like just send us to like a cool fucking bar. So they sent us to this place. I forget what it was called. And we go in and it is exactly that. It's this like really cool bar. Um, all just like locals, kind of like a Charles Bukowski type place. But in they had like a side room and we look in this side room and there's a band on stage and we recognize everybody but don't know who they are. And like their names, and they're all like television actors. It was all like, uh, like literally, like the front man was that guy in House. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You like, went on to be, yeah, exactly. Like went on to be in Veep, and yeah. and like the like the chick singing was the chick from that TV show Heroes. And it was like this total LA thing where like everyone you look at, you're like, you kind of know that person. Um, and then, like, it, first of all, I wasn't at the urinal when I ran into John Mayer. Like, I was standing <laughs> in the bar, and I just looked to my left, and he's, like, standing right next to me. And then they they were like, oh, yeah, we'd like to introduce a friend to come up and play. And then all of a sudden, John Mayer's on stage playing music, a really cheesy version of um, Lean On Me, Super Kumbaya and Lane. And, and what was not – it wasn't his fault. and It was the band. And what was happening was – it was the it was when the writers' strike was going on in Hollywood, so they had all these TV people were out having some sort of like party or benefit to rally around the writers' strike, and the band was like all these like TV people who don't normally play music play music, and the band was called Band from TV, and one of them must have known John Mayer, and that's how he ended up there. And there's your there's your story. And I thank God that that's the story that Evan shared with you from that week instead of the other ones that are far more uh, embarrassing. And uh, I don't want to have down on tape because I don't want my kids to hear them someday. I told you, Brad. <laughs> I he, told did, you. he did give Listen, me another story gave, that I didn't Brad, <laughs> Brad presented me with two options for this. And I told him the one. I'm like, he's not going to talk about that. <laughs> I, i've run into this problem before a, a few episodes back we had uh brian from the bouncing souls on and i got the best mystery friend i mean a lurid tale that that took 20 minutes to tell me he heard it and he's like nope not touching that <laughs> love it love it well, i commend you guys for your discretion and your research very cool so there was one funny detail that i found particularly funny that you didn't mention which was evan said that you guys specifically sought out like the diviest bar you could because you'd had it with you'd you'd spent the week like running into celebrities left and right and you were literally trying to get away from yeah. celebrities yeah that's true like we were staying at the roosevelt in hollywood and at the time there was a bar it's probably still there on the first floor called teddy's and it was it was ted Demi, ted demi's bar or son's bar or something it was like the hollywood hang at that moment and like i mean like literally like justin timberlake was having his birthday there one night we were there and like it was just it was insane it was like everywhere we went we were just having this like surreal hollywood week and we're trying to work and we're working like 14 hour days and we get to you know you want to just have a beer you know you don't want to like deal with drew drew barrymore like you know 
partying her face off in the corner, as stupid as that sounds. And that's where that request came from. Like, send us to the diviest, shittiest bar where we can just, like, hang out. And, of course, it being Hollywood, it was inundated with Hollywood people at that moment. <laughs> All right. Nice. So Good so story. take this, okay? Say Say tomorrow, you're like, I got kids now. I'm sick of writing five hours a day. I retire. I'm retired from Disgraceland. And you hand it to somebody else. And then they're like, you know what? I'd really like to do a Jake Brennan podcast. <laughs> and they look into you from, let's say, you know, your touring years in like, you know, 96 to 98 or some of those years. What is the disgrace? Excuse me. What is the Disgraceland story about you? I mean, I honestly think it's that I didn't party hard enough. I left, I left some stuff on the table. I really did. There's, I was too careful, man. Like it was, uh, I don't know that there's a lot of there there. I mean, you know, we drank a lot and, you know, I mean, there were some illicit substances. So maybe things are escaping my memory at the moment, but nothing to the, to the damaged hole of some of the artists that I covered. I really empathize with what you just said because I've gone through music, you know, this world for, for 20 plus years now and touring and doing all this stuff. And I'm the same. I never, I don't know. I just never let it get to that point. You know, like you got to take care of business, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also, I think coming up, you know, in the, for me coming up in the nineties, right. It was a different world. Mm -hmm. Like, like my, my North star was Ian McCott. You know what I mean? Right, it's like, right. it's, and I wasn't straight edge or anything, but like I, I had, I wanted to work hard. I wanted to get the job done. I wanted to do the gig, you know, I had a very black flag, get in the van kind of mentality. Um, not to say we didn't party. We did. I'm not trying to pre present myself as something different, but it, it was also the thing about the nineties too, was people don't remember this, but like we were scared to death of dying every time we had sex. Like it was, it was a real fear, yeah. you know, like AIDS was a real fear. And the other thing, drugs weren't, you know, of course, you know, you have Kurt Cobain and all that, but drugs weren't what they are. They weren't as prevalent then as they are now, not hard drugs, mm. you know, not, not like it is now where it's easy to get heroin and you're at a, you're, you're at a party and someone like throws out some, some blow on the table. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was different. And I think I'm a product of that time and, and. I'm thankful for it. You know, plus there was the history, all the tragic tales. Like we knew what they were and you could just see them. And I didn't want to end up like that, you know? Yeah, I feel you. I was looking behind my shoulder uh, every day the year I was 27, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I was like, oh shit, my band's doing pretty well. This is bad. Yeah. This is bad. This is bad. I'm screwed. I should have stayed home. No plan <laughs> Well, thanks a lot for doing this. I really appreciate you jumping on with us. I uh, very much enjoy your podcast and then was uh, doubly excited when I started doing research on you and found out that you're, uh, you're from the scene, man. So um, just to finish, uh, we've been trying to find in this new year um, if you could recommend a, uh, a book or a film or a podcast or something that's been... Um, helping creatively or spiritually fulfill you this year? 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> the podcast I've most been into this year is a podcast called Real Dictators. Whoa. And it's about all the savage dictators of the past from Kim Jong-un in the present to um, Chairman Mao, Joseph Stalin. Um, you know, it's it's not a light lift, but I do find it to be uh, soothing and entertaining. And I'm not saying that to be a smart ass. Like when we look at the world, um, you know, potentially falling apart as as the media is telling us it's doing every single day. This provides real context, and you know, it's helped me sort of have perspective that I didn't think I would normally have. Um, and it's done really well. It's a great podcast. It's by this company called Noiser. I don't know much about them. I think they're from Europe or something, but it's all in English. It's great. It's called Real Dictators. Um, for for movies uh shit television let's see i, I rewatched spotlight last night uh the great movie about the boston globe and the uh catholic church scandal uh that's not a surprise that's a pretty famous movie not really watching any television at the moment i'm uh i'm reading the best non-music book i wrote has a, i've read recently that doesn't actually ironically has a music title but it's not about music is called music for chameleons by truman capote it's a mm. book of his uh short stories and magazine articles that he put together toward the end of his career it's incredible i've talked about this before on my podcast there's a chapter that he writes about this this hang he had with marilyn monroe which is uh worth the entire price of the book alone it's amazing so i check out uh music for chameleons and then for actual music i'm digging this uh Swedish pop guy at the moment uh, called Joel Alme, and that's A-L-M-E. He's incredible, just deep, haunting, romantic-sounding crooner, uh, but he's a modern guy, and uh, production is amazing. Just check him out, Joel Alme. Love it. Those are all great. Well, Jake, thanks again, man. I appreciate you uh, taking all this time, and I, I hope you're not too, uh, too blizzarded up there. We're buried, man, but I can dig it. I'm a hardy New Englander, so I can. I got my heavy socks. I'm good. I'm all good. It was awesome talking to you guys. I really appreciate you having me on, and, and I hope we get to talk again. Yeah, me too. It was a pleasure. Take care, Jake. Thanks, Jake. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, that was fun. Go listen to some of those shows. Yeah. Hey, uh, we said it in the show, but thanks, Evan. Evan Kenny, awesome dude. Um, for the mystery friend, I was listening like before the show, maybe like an hour before we were supposed to record with Jake. And he, he says the credits at the end and he's like, and he announces the guys in the band who played the theme song. And he says, Evan Kenny. And I'm like, what? I know that dude. All right. I got to connect here. So I called Evan and I'm glad because I, I hadn't touched base with him in a long time and it was cool to. Touch base with that dude. He's a cool guy. Awesome. Thanks, Evan. And I think anybody, you know, like from the East Coast or someone who comes from the punk hardcore scene, I had some fairly similar LA experiences the first couple times I was out there. <laughs> you know, where someone actually convinces you to go to some like corny place in downtown LA. And I'm like, oh, it can't be like what everybody says, you know? And I'm there right. for five minutes and I see fucking Mick Lovin from Super Bad, like just having a <laughs> beer. And I'm like, oh, it's true. Yeah. And it's super weird. And that's how I, I, we found it's not like some big secret, but we just started always drinking at the crowbar in LA. And the most famous person to hang out there 
is a guy named Midget T, <laughs> who is a Mr. T impersonator who, as you can imagine, is also a midget. Um, but he's kind of mean. <laughs> You'd think he'd be cool. I should have kept hanging out with Mick Weldon. So maybe that's what keeps the keeps the snoots away. Yeah, maybe that is it. But, <laughs> man, funny stories. Oh, I want to yeah. get more into these... Uh, this craziness about what happens in music. I mean, what is it? What is it, Brad? (laughs) You know, I think that's the biggest thing we've talked about this on here. Like, you know, what is it? Is it, is it the lifestyle that brings people to this or is it the people that get drawn to this lifestyle? You know, the people it's, you, you don't become a huge superstar in any form of the arts if you are a totally fucking normal joe just doesn't happen there's not one example one example of somebody who is normal or who's dave grohl seems like a real normal guy yeah yeah. maybe yeah who knows he probably does some freaky shit at home and he also like he's also like the coolest rock star that you know like he knows how to be a rock star like he's like yeah, this rules. I've got the best job in the world. Like he doesn't whine about it. He yeah, fucking yeah, uses yeah. it. To, he's like, he's like, oh my sure. god, I think I might be famous enough that I could actually meet and play with Paul McCartney, and I'm gonna try and do it. Yeah, like he does all the shit that like people should do who are that like famous and like it's still cool to him. Yeah, I think he's the cool guy who just also happened to be a monster drummer, and he kind of got into it. Completely on skill and luck, which doesn't. But that's where I feel like, happen. in order to be, you know, and we've discussed this on this podcast, in order to be that guy, you have to be fairly well adjusted. Right. You know, you have to fuel your creativity from a place that doesn't ruin your life, which a lot of people can't do. Right. You know, some people have to ruin their lives to make records. Right. Dave Grohl doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to treat people in a crazy way. He knows how to communicate to people. He knows how to uh, be empathetic to other people's feelings and respond to it. Like all these things that someone who is just bat shit crazy just simply cannot do. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, there is a difference here. There's some people who are just so off the rails and it's like, it's like they were almost lucky to make it to 27, you know? Right. Right. And a guy like Dave Grohl, I feel like, if you didn't raise him in the punk scene and you put him in like a school, he'd probably be like the CEO of a big company or something like, like kind of, you know, uh, built for success. <laughs> so I feel like he's, he's almost like an anomaly. I think you can call in the exception that proves the rule. Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The thing that he brought up and, you know, I didn't bring it up in the podcast because it could have taken an hour. It could have been its own podcast because we've talked about this before, but you know, from my own personal experience, I think we all have like some crazy PTSD from, from traveling and touring, you know? Mm. And Jake in one of his quotes said that, can you imagine the high of playing in front of 50,000 people being hyped on adrenaline And now imagine doing that 200 nights in a row and not needing drugs to help you. Almost as if like the people who don't need the drugs to help them after that are the anomaly. And the other people 
come home and are different than they were. And that's where I feel like that initial question I asked you of like, is it the, the scene that people go to that transforms them or is it the person? And I do think you're right that the person draws you to this place, but the way it's designed and the way uh, insecure people are idolized and put on pedestals and the way you perform for these people and the way real life is taken away and you're kind of floating in this alternate fantasy life. And like he said, you know, the idea that you're punching your adrenaline up every night and then you have these Mm. serotonin and dopamine just like crashes here and there. Like, I think you're taking people who are susceptible to being sick and insecure and having a hard time anyway, and then giving them a lifestyle that's like, literally impossible to maintain, (laughs) you know? So I do think there's like a little bit of both here that it meets and, and I hope in the future, and maybe it's a different scenario that like people can kind of recognize this and like, you know, there's sort of like this balls out approach to touring a lot where it's just like, yo, I could take it. And maybe people (laughs) need to like talk a little bit more like at first about what it actually does to you, you know? I could be like a speaker. I'm going to go to fucking high schools and be like, listen, I was once like a semi-happy person and now I just can't keep it together. And it's music. Go to college, friends. You know? <laughs> Maybe that's how I'll get my honorary degree. What do you think? Uh, our greatest art is always going to be made by the most fucked up people. So No. No matter it's how so you try to adjust for it. <laughs> that's how uh, Paul McCartney makes pop songs in his 70s now, you know? <laughs> just wants to be happy, man. Just wants to be happy. Just wants to be happy. Everybody, I'm sure you know where to find Disgraceland through Amazon Music. I think he's Disgraceland Pod on Twitter, Disgraceland Pod on Instagram. Thanks again to Jake and his his crew for setting this up and him giving us the time. What a what a fun ride. Absolute. Absolute. We'll see you all next week. Hey Brad, take it easy on those keyboards. <laughs> 